It's all about relationships. That's true to an extent, but really what's being looked at first is, does your product do what you say it does? Because the customer is then going to put that product in front of Japanese consumers who are, as we know, very demanding. So they need to know that they can present your technology to those consumers and have a good product. So having things work is extremely important. The relation build is in parallel with that. It doesn't come first, I would say. You can't have a great relationship and a crappy product. Hello everyone and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Buchelman. This podcast is for individuals who want to develop and strengthen the communication skills and mindsets that are essential for a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in-depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Will Jaspriza, the Managing Director of Japan at the International Business Development Consultancy, Interlink. Although born in Australia and educated as a lawyer, Will found himself starting a new life teaching English in Japan that eventually brought him to his current role, where he and his team works to make the expansion of foreign companies into Japan fast, easy, and cost-effective. But we'll hear more about Will's story in just a minute. Before we get into the interview, I want to go over some Japanese. First, let's review a word that came up in the previous podcast. Otoshidokoro. 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 A possible translation for otoshidokoro is the place where things fall. What it really refers to, however, is a point of compromise or common ground. If you want to hear more about this term and its function in Japanese business culture, be sure to listen to the previous episode with David Tong. Although it's come up before on the podcast, I want to formally introduce the Japanese word hanko. Ha. N. Ko. Hanko. Hanko, on a basic level, is a stamp that Japanese people use as a personal seal in place of a signature. Obviously, this system works better with Japanese names that are made up of a few kanji or kana, but it's also possible to have a hanko made with foreign names as well, which would typically be written in katakana. Hanko play a key role in the fundamentally consensus-driven culture that is common in many Japanese businesses. Later in the episode, Will discusses some difficulties this practice can raise, as well as how things seem to be changing in Japan, so be sure to keep listening to learn more. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your time with us. Would you mind just briefly introducing yourself to my audience? Sure. So I'm Will Jasprizer. I'm from Australia originally, but I've been in Japan for 23 years. Uh, originally a, a lawyer by training, but now I work in business development for a consultancy that's based out of London, but it's now international. So can you tell us a little bit about your history with Japan then? Sure. Really, it starts with back at high school when I began uh, studying karate at, uh, I was 15, I think, because my best friend was doing it. And there were occasional visits from Japan by very senior sensei and there'd be a, a seminar we'd attend. And that was all very exotic when you're a 15 year old in, in Sydney. And we'd use the counting. So I had my intro first introduction to, to Japanese. And then many, many years later, while I was working, so it would have been 25, I thought I'd study Japanese because 
my interest had been piqued. I was still practicing karate. And I spent about a year and a half studying. And then while I was working as a lawyer, I really enjoyed it. But the chance came up to go into the JET program, which you're probably familiar with. So the Japanese government sponsors people from English-speaking countries. Back then, it was mostly English-speaking countries. Now it's extended, I think, to um, French and German-speaking com- countries as well. So I cut short being a lawyer. I thought I'd take a year off and go to Japan. And uh, 23 years later, I'm still here. So that's a very long roundabout way. But yeah, I guess it was the martial arts that originally got me here. Yeah, that's a pretty universal trend that I notice with people is they find some aspect of Japanese culture, oftentimes either pop culture or more traditional arts <laughs> that they get interested in. And then somehow Japan just ends up pulling them in. It's a love affair, if you, I yes. think, really. Yeah, definitely. Because the more you get to know Japan, the longer you stay because you find more things that you love about the country. Exactly. So thank you for sharing that. So... Did you have a specific reason for wanting to take a break from law, just out of curiosity? Really, it was it was more that I looked around and it, it was a fantastic job, I have to say. I was working at, um, it was a, a big Sydney law firm. I had great colleagues, great bosses, but I was young and I hadn't seen the world. So I thought, well, I can always come back to this. That's it, really. And then Japan, I had that curiosity. I didn't know much about Japan and think... We're talking 1997, so we're not quite pre-internet, but we're pretty much pre, pre-Google. pre It was all a mystery. And I thought Japan would be more interesting than somewhere like the States or France, where although the culture is different, it's that much closer to, to what I had in Australia. So that was it. I thought a year would do it. It's still, it's still going. Yeah, that's another common trend. People thinking one or two years and then <laughs> sticking around a little bit longer than that and being happy about it. So then can you tell us a little bit more about what you do now? Sure. So I run the Tokyo office for a consultancy uh, called Intralink. And basically we help uh, Western companies expand their business into Asia. And the other way, Asian companies, we help them with their business in Europe and the States. I guess I should say the UK now. UK and, and Europe are separate entities. Uh, so basically, we work with a lot of startups and scale-ups that need to get into the market that have technology and they think that Japanese companies, or in my case, I'm looking after Japan, so Japanese companies will be interested in their technology. We help them sell that technology into the Japanese market. For foreigners like yourself who are in Japan, hmm. what does the market look like for business development? So let me contrast it with how it looked, say, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Back then, and the way we worked back then compared to the way we work now, it wasn't as common to have clients visit back then. So if you're a startup back then, maybe you'd visit the territory, in our case, Japan. We'd meet, we'd learn up the technology from our, our client. They would meet potentially some customers, but then they, they'd go back to the States or the UK, and we would be doing business for them in Japan and talking to them each week. It was not common to come out for extended periods of time, and we would be effectively running the show at a distance. These days, we see a lot more uh, travel to Japan, obviously with the exception of the last year and a half, and clients are are a lot more comfortable coming to Japan 
they can get around um, themselves if they've got a smartphone on the trains. You can read the signs in English these days, which wasn't the case 15 years ago. So the environment has become, it's become easier to operate in Japan. And in the background, we've also seen the emergence of a lot of incubators and accelerators in Tokyo. So Japanese startups find it easier. And then it's easier to match, in a sense, a Western startup that wants to get into the market. But having said all of that, it's easier to operate in Japan, but you still have to cross that language barrier. You still need to know what you're doing in the country. You can't just parachute in and then expect your business to take off. Maybe you want to explore that a bit more, but uh, it's a general, yeah. a general overview of how I see it at the moment. No, that's great. Thank you. It's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, it works well in my country. So obviously in another country, I should be able to have my product or service take off without any difficulty, but that's really never the case. Exactly. Yeah, you need to adapt. And Japan is a, is a market where uh, it will repay your flexibility and adaptability. And we can talk about examples, but uh, I think one of the most famous ones is Starbucks, which you know, got into the market, I think back in 95, via a joint venture. So working with a Japanese entity to learn about the market, build out its business, and then bought back that business. So now it's wholly owned by the US parent. That took 20 years, but now I think Starbucks has what, 1,500 stores. So there's an investment in time, but Japan will repay that. Then just with things logistically becoming easier for companies to enter Japan in terms of being able to send people over because there's English signage, more mm -hmm. Japanese people being able to communicate in English, more availability of high quality interpreters just because you have access through the internet. Have you found the demand for services like what your company offers grow or has it become a little bit of a harder sell in some sense because people assume that they can DIY it in a sense nowadays? So I think we've seen that there are a lot of companies that think they can do it themselves. So quite often now we will, we will get clients who are companies that tried to do it themselves, haven't been successful and then have come to us or they've hired somebody to be their country manager and hasn't quite worked out and we called in to help. So it hasn't really affected us in a de detrimental fashion. Um, we're just seeing more people in the market. We're seeing more people who speak Japanese in, in Japan. So back you know, 15, 20 years ago, if you were a Caucasian in Tokyo, everyone just assumed that you were an English teacher. But now you could be working at Google, you could be working at Apple. It's a very diverse metropolitan metropolis i should say so yeah we've seen changes but business for us is, is is great and in fact now with the pandemic ironically no one can visit so there's even more demand and we're back to working remotely clients not visiting they want to get into the market we're here on the ground so yeah a, a very small silver lining to to an otherwise long and drawn out pandemic that's obviously still affecting people Right. It's no compensation for the situation, it's, but it's it is definitely no compensation. <laughs> no. So then can you tell us a little bit more about some of those roadblocks that companies who do try to break in on their own 
most commonly face? Yeah, so I'd say the first one is is language because you can come here and you can set up meetings. I would say a lot of companies have set up meetings just by reaching out to people on LinkedIn. They've arranged over a period of a week a series of meetings. They've gone in, they've done the meetings in English. They've had what they thought was a positive response. They go away and then nothing happens. And that's simply because maybe they couldn't read the room Maybe they weren't talking to the right people or maybe because they just didn't do the right follow-up afterwards. So that's, that's one thing. You, you need the language. You also need the, the, the follow-up. So if you're not in country, if you don't have somebody to, to follow up on the business you originally, on the meetings that you originally had, it's very hard to go anywhere. Uh, there'll probably be some uh, technical evaluation of your product, in which case you'll need to support that with, an engineer. Quite often that would need to be an in-country engineer, depending on what the product is. So there's that barrier. If you're in med tech and, and, and pharma, then the regulatory aspect is, is huge. So you really need to do your homework before you even get into the market, because there's a considerable cost to having products certified. And you need to know that ahead of time. So you can you can plan your activities in Japan. And then if you want to set up an entity, it's not difficult to actually set up an entity in Japan. The thing is, once you've set it up, though, you need to have somebody to operate it. You need to understand Japanese law when it comes to hiring people. You have to have someone do your payroll, etc. So it's just like setting up a business anywhere with that added layer of, of language. The, the culture is different and some of the regulations are vastly different to what you might be familiar with in the States or Australia or, or Europe. You mentioned follow-up being really important in Japan yeah. and, and building and maintaining relationships. Could you describe that a little bit more? What tend to be the average expectations of Japanese companies when entering into business relationships, especially with new and maybe less well-known companies? Yeah, without trying to generalize for all, all Japanese right. industry, <laughs> uh, Basically, you need to do what you say you're going to do, live up to the promises that you make, set expectations, and then deliver on those. Because the relationships will tend to be longer term. So the initial period, you're, you're basically demonstrating what sort of partner you'll be from here on for many years. If you're doing a technical evaluation and you promise to deliver something in two weeks, you should do that in two weeks. And you shouldn't and this sounds very simplistic, but it, it isn't rocket science. If you get to that two-week point and then say, oh, sorry, it's going to be delayed for a week. At this end, you could have screwed the engineers <laughs> expecting to work on that, uh, maybe a new software build. And now they're a week behind schedule. So you have not only inconvenienced them, but the, the potential customer will now view you as unreliable. So... If you sense that you're not going to hit your deadline, get on the phone, talk to the customer and say, look, this is going to happen. We're going to need more time and reset expectations. But ideally, you, you keep the, the deadline that you set in the first place. So that whole process of evaluating, it's not just evaluating your technology. You are really being evaluated as a partner, as a company that the Japanese customer will want to work with. It's, kind of, it's a bit like, it's like a job interview, a very long job interview where the technology is is being evaluated, but uh, 
that's the technical skills, but also the personality and the attitude of the person is being evaluated at the same time. It definitely makes a lot of sense. And I've heard it articulated as, I guess, particularly in the Japanese business culture, they're more relationship first than task, whereas many Western business cultures tend to focus more on we do the task and that's how we build our long-term relationship. So it's kind of just a different emphasis <laughs> and a set of assumptions that you're working from when entering into a new relationship. So Yeah, it's a high context culture and you need to adapt to that. I think the relationship, you know, it's all about relationships. That's true to, to an extent, but I also think that especially in the situation we're in now, we've moved away from that, oh, you've got to go out and drinking with the customer to form that relationship. That is possible and that that can be done in certain situations. But really what's being looked at first is, does your product do what you say it does? Because the customer is then going to put that product in front of Japanese consumers who are, as we know, very demanding. So they need to know that they can present your technology to those consumers and have a good product. So having things work is extremely important. The relation build is in parallel with that. It doesn't come first, I would say. You can't have a great relationship in a crappy product. It's about June 2nd, or it is oh. June 2nd when we're recording. So Tokyo and much of Japan has been in a lockdown for a while. And you mentioned those drinking meetings that you'll have to kind of help bolster your relationship with Japanese companies. Hmm. How has that been recently? Have companies been able to shift their expectations around those sorts of meetings and them being impossible in this sort of situation? What have you noticed recently? So those kind of sessions aren't happening quite simply. Right now it's a state of emergency and it's the, the strictest level so far, which means that shops aren't serving alcoholic beverages either during the day or of an evening, uh, and they shut at eight o'clock. So previous to this state of emergency, you could actually go out and have a beer, but most companies are being compliant here. So they're directing their staff not to engage in those activities as, as we do, which means that people are only meeting online or occasionally face-to-face -face during the day. So those, you know, after-work after, after drinks with customers aren't happening. And that has some effect, I would say, but business still goes on. I think it probably has a greater effect on the, the personal level. People aren't having that personal contact that they would normally have. Um, so there's probably a latent level of stress across all of Japan, I guess, across the whole world, because people aren't getting out and they don't have that, that valve, stress release valve of just chatting casually rather than being in a, in a formal meeting. So I expect that once we're on the other side of this, people are gonna go out a lot. There'll be people calling up old business contacts and saying, let's go out and have a beer just because they've missed that. I've, I've heard that in the States at the moment, it's really easy to get calls with venture capitalists because they're, they're, they're bored and they, they're, they've got more time. I think that's what we're going to have here. People are going to, there's going to be a lot more socializing. Right now, it's, it's, as you probably experience, a succession of Zoom calls, I think, would describe the average day for many people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty universal right now. 
just in many countries all over the world. Yeah. So have you noticed any difference in especially new business relationships, how they've been able to develop? Have people been able to adapt other ways of developing and cultivating those relationships? Has it been a little bit harder or have people been able to connect over Zoom instead of going out for drinks? It's it's harder. I don't think anyone would would suggest that it's great to be to be talking to people only on Zoom. But we've found it over here that people have adapted very quickly. Right at the beginning, you had the is it is it Teams, is it Zoom, um, is it Skype for business? My mic's not working, my camera's not set up. There are a few months there where people really weren't used to it. Now it's second nature to everybody. It's very common. We had our, our first client sign up a client we've never met before. We thought that was impossible. We thought that we have to meet people and then have to have that physical um, face-to-face meeting before we can win somebody's business. We've learned that's that's not a requirement. Uh, On this end, we're meeting Japanese companies. And instead of us doing that first meeting face-to-face and then the next time we're taking along a client, to meet them we're doing it all on on zoom it just means that we've got a lot of zoom calls very early in the morning to accommodate us clients and then later in the evening for for uk clients but japan's adapted you know it's it's trickier harder to read the room over zoom but it, it's working i think it'll it'll still be part of business once we're post vaccination and, and post pandemic but i think people will move to a mix of of the face-to-face. So for example, I had a face-to-face meeting yesterday with a, a chap, a farmer related fellow. Um, and he said, I really don't like doing Zoom meetings. I like doing face-to-face meetings, at least the first meeting. Then we can move to, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. On, on that, maybe if I could just extend that point, one thing is you'd be familiar with the, the old tradition of swapping business cards in Japan and the whole ceremony over that. One of the problems with Zoom is you're not swapping business cards with people. So uh, you can't just a year later pull out someone's card and say, oh, I, I remember Tanaka-san. I'll, I'll, I'll give her a call. You don't have Tanaka-san's details necessarily. You may have an email address. You may not. Not if five people have joined from the same room. So there are elements that you have to work around. Um, and that's why people met face-to-face. I've met you. Here's proof we met. You're someone, you're not just some stranger contacting me out of the blue. I was just curious if you think the situation has started to increase the appeal of LinkedIn specifically for Japanese professionals, because relatively speaking, especially compared to Western countries, or at least especially compared to the U.S., the uptake in Japan has been relatively small for professionals on LinkedIn in Japan. Has Have you noticed people becoming more open to using LinkedIn or has that really not played much of a factor? Yes, we've, we've noticed people are more willing to use LinkedIn, but it depends what kind of work they're in. So if, if they're working uh, in corporate venture capital, they'll be on LinkedIn. But if the person works in R&D, they may not be. Uh, so it tends to be a seniority thing. The very senior people with any kind of internationality to their roles tend to be on LinkedIn. But there's also a competing Japanese solution called 8. 
in which you upload your business card. It's, it's kind of like LinkedIn with business cards, but it's a Japanese facing social network. You can join it if you don't, if you don't speak Japanese, but most people have the, their information in Japanese. We've found that actually we're using eight a lot because people who aren't on LinkedIn are on eight, but we're also using LinkedIn more than we used to. We, we simply have to. When we're normally following up with people, we're calling their office to talk to them. It used to be that you'd call and someone would say, oh, um, I'm sorry, but Yanagi-san's in a meeting. Okay, I'll call back. Call back in another meeting. Now when we call, it's, oh, yeah, he's working from home today. Okay, so it doesn't matter if we call back. Then we have to find it. Then it's back to emailing that person or LinkedIn. So we try different tools and I think people are moving towards more and varied methods of communication. You know, Slack has popped up as a, as a tool, not as widely, I think, as in the West, um, but people are moving to those, to those new tools simply because they have to. That's actually the first time that I've heard about eight. So I'll definitely have to look into it and see if I can share a link in the description. I'll try to do that as well for the audience. Going back to your work in business development, have you noticed any particular traits or mindsets that sets successful companies apart from those that tend to have more difficulty being successful in the Japanese market? Sure. And once again, this will sound very general, but adaptability. So I think you mentioned earlier, just coming in expecting Japan to work the same as anywhere else isn't a good starting point. So you should learn about the market ahead of time. You should understand that certain things take time in Japan. And that may be frustrating when you first realize it. You just need to accept that that, that is the case. So you set your expectations. For example, in automotive, the sales cycle might be two years. Well, or it could even be longer. You shouldn't get into the market assuming you'll do a deal in the first three months. If you do that, you'll just be disappointed. Being curious, so asking questions. We find that we, when we have clients who ask questions rather than come in and simply talk, they do a lot better because when you're talking, you're not learning. Obviously, you need to talk to an extent to present your technology. But it's when you ask questions that you you find out from the other side what's actually going on. So we find that the more curious a client is, the better that they will do in Japan. So there's a couple of broad points. Having a long-term view is obviously something that we see as a success factor. I mean, if I can give an example, we have one client who um, has been with us for a long time. Typically, our engagements are only, say, a year or two. So we help the client get set up. We win them some business. Then they'll hire maybe a technical person, then a country manager, then they graduate, put out a press release. Everyone's happy. We have one client who's been with us now, I think, for 12 years. Why? Because it's working for them that we're effectively their, their office here. But the, the CEO is a wonderful chap. So Stephen Aldersley, he, he's a wonderful chap who sets aside time to come out to Japan every year and go and meet the distributors. And we get the feedback from them. They're like, it's really nice. The CEO comes all the way from the UK each year to say, how's the business going? Is there anything we can do better? And that's why the business has lasted for, you know, 12 years operating remotely uh, and bringing in 
money from Japan and having and growing growing that business. It's a long term view that ha- has constant investment from the UK company. Mm-hmm. Constant investment is a great way of putting it as well. Have you noticed some changes? I know we did touch on this quite a bit, but are there any other changes in business development that you've seen recently that are likely linked to the COVID situation? Sure. So COVID's been an accelerant for digital transformation. So we had the the system in Japan where documents were not signed, they were stamped with an official hanko is the is the term here or or chop, I guess you could say. Very frustrating because it needs a person to actually adhere that stamp. And it meant that a lot of things took a long time because one document may be needed, the hunko of several people. It also meant that there needed to be people in the office when they should have been at home. When there was a state of emergency, they should have been at home. Sorry, you've got to go in and stamp some documents. On the market now, there are electronic stamps. You can actually do the signing process electronically. You can work from home and still move those documents um, through the signing process. The other day, I, I signed my first Japanese document with a signature. Now, admittedly, it was an in-person signature, so we, we haven't quite moved to the DocuSign uh, situation. But we've seen that, and that's really helpful in moving things along faster. So I've seen some contracts get signed a lot faster in the last year and a half than previously, where it wouldn't be unknown for it to take two months for the final signing process to occur. So that's one thing. The the ability for people to work remotely, I think Japanese companies weren't sure about that. And now a lot of them have seen, oh, we can do this. But that meant changing IT systems. And that's taken, that's taken some time because Although Japan is a fantastically modern place, there are a lot of legacy systems based on Excel sheets and and paper documents. And we're seeing that change, which is great. I can see how it would definitely accelerate changes. Well, I have a few Japanese friends who work at very traditional companies, and I've definitely seen that um, trend hold true as well, where things that they said were completely impossible at the beginning of the pandemic now are suddenly normal. So Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in that sense, they would have happened eventually, but everything's been moved, moved forward a number of years. And I think to, to people's benefit, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of, a lot of what time wasted on, on paperwork. I mean, there are still faxes floating about in Japan, amazingly, but I think maybe that this has been the death knell for the fax finally in Japan. 20 years after, I think, it disappeared from every, from the rest of the world. Yeah, we'll just have to wait and see if those get fired up again once the office is open. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. Would you mind telling a little bit about your experiences as an entrepreneur in Japan as well? So I guess you found out about my, my pre-intralink um, endeavors. So after the JET program, which is this government program where basically you're put into a, a, an English, uh, you're an English teacher, at a government school. A friend and I co-founded a, a company um, in which we produced CD-ROMs, because this is the year 2000, CD-ROMs were cutting edge technology back then. And we produced songs and software to help elementary school kids learn English. So for four years, we traveled all over Japan. I think there are only two prefectures that I haven't been to. And we would do performances at 
children at schools, at elementary schools in, in Japan. And we would do teacher training at conferences. And we made our living by selling these CD-ROMs. And for, I think there were performance fees as well. So that was four years of life. It was, it was a fantastic experience, you know, initially, no salary, then a little bit of salary, but not a lot. It was the startup experience. Met a lot of fantastic people, uh, got to see Japan, and the business is still going. So it's, it's called uh, Genki English, and my former business partner, Richard, is still running it, um, and it's doing very well. Uh, yeah, it was a great part of, of life in Japan. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a very special experience. But do you have any lessons maybe that you learned bootstrapping a small business in Japan? It's hard. It's really hard. I mean, just calling. We did a lot of calling. We had to call a lot of people to, you know, we had to convince a school to let two, two white guys come in and do a, an impromptu session where they were, they were, we were teaching kids singing in English. That was a hard sell. Yeah, I think grit taught us that grit and persistence were important, but also that it was possible to, to do it if you spent the time and, and the effort. But it, it, it was a bit grueling right at the beginning. Other lessons, yeah, sales is persistence. It's talking to people. It's, it's listening to people and it's relationships. I can't be any more profound than that. Um, now, all very true things, very important things to remember, especially in Japan. So do you have any specific examples of a communication breakdown that you've experienced that you think is due to cultural differences? I've thought a lot about this and we're actually, our role is to stop those communication breakdowns occurring. So uh, they shouldn't be happening on our watch because we're there to solve that, that problem. The only real example I could think of was one where a client had promised something to a system integrator and that then had to be provided to the end customer. And the build wasn't finished on time and we, we had stressed, you, you need to deliver it this time. And it wasn't. And the end result was, and I think I alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation, that it ended up having an impact, a much bigger impact than the client realised. And I think the, the lack of communication was on both sides. The system integrator just assumed that the, the delivery would be on time and didn't explain what was happening in the background. If you don't deliver it on time, all of this will happen. And the client thought that, okay, if it's a few days late, that's fine. So in the end, it involved us, let's say us, me having to go and, and do the formal apology to the system integrator and say, you know, I'm sorry, this is what happened at this end. That's why we didn't deliver it. And they accepted that, but it had caused some, it caused a major issue for them. So, yeah, I guess that miscommunication on, on both ends there. And uh, that was a lot, it was a long time ago, but it, it sticks out. So once again, stick to deadlines. And, and if you're not going to hit them, give the other side a heads up. Again, communication is everything. It's a lot, yeah. So if you were chatting with somebody who was going to Japan and hoping to work in business, but you really only had time to warn them or teach them one thing ahead of time, what would you choose to tell them about? I've only got one thing, right? Yeah. Okay. Time and how time is treated in Japan. 
So in, in Australia and in the UK, we have the concept of ish, right? 10-ish, 9-ish, okay? That concept is not here. Nine o'clock is nine o'clock. Uh, if you ever travel on the, the Shinkansen, you know if it's going to leave at 9.01, it leaves at 9.01. And why is that important? Well, that's simply how people deal with time in Japan. When you ask someone what the time is, they might say it's 9.03. Now, uh, in Australia, someone say oh, it's nine. Why? Well, that's because maybe Australia has a looser culture. Japan has a, a tighter culture. But because that is the case, you need to adhere to the way it's done in Japan. So if you have a nine o'clock meeting, you don't get there at nine o'clock. You're already late. You need to get there early so that you can get the, the pass to get up into the room and be there before nine o'clock so the meeting can start at nine. And that may, may sound like, oh, that's just being fussy about time. But actually, that shows respect to the other side. So they're like, great, we like working with these people. They know the basics, get here on time. It also may put you in the room with somebody before the rest of the team has gathered and you can talk to them. And there's a lot of learning that goes on in those informal periods before the official meeting, after the official meeting. So I think time would be the, would be the thing. It touches on that deadline point, deadlines sacrosanct. Be respectful of people's time. If you, I give one example. If you have a meeting in Toyota down in Toyota City at the technical center, and it's nine till ten o'clock. At nine fifty-five, you will be hustled out of that room. You need to know that so that you don't talk for fifty-five minutes and then expect five minutes of Q and A at the end. The next person is going to be in that room and ready to go at ten. So knowing that how that time is run that way means you allow more time for Q&A. Don't present the whole meeting, present for a portion and then allocate some time to talk. Mm -hmm. Those are both really great points about taking advantage of those informal periods and then also being very, very respectful of other people's time. It should be a good thing to do in business in general, but it's definitely doubly true in Japan. Triply true, yeah. Was there anything else that we didn't really get to cover today or you would like to discuss before we wrap things up for this interview? Being in the middle of the, the pandemic, it's a strange situation. It's not really, this is how things are done in Japan because it's, it's a transitional period. This is how things are, are being done in Japan right now. Um, the world is very different a year and a half ago. Weird. So we, we have new staff who've joined us mid-pandemic and we're teaching them how to do meetings, but the meeting is a Zoom call. We've got people who've never done a face-to-face -face meeting before. They've never exchanged business cards with a, with a customer before, which is kind of strange. But we found that people are really adaptable. And I guess that's the good takeaway from this. Whatever happens, people will, will, will adapt. Um, and yeah, what's on the other side? Who knows? So I don't know if your audience is, is thinking, okay, after the pandemic, I'd like to go to Japan, please come over. Um, it's, a, it's a great place to work. It's an extremely dynamic environment. My only advice is bone up on your Japanese. If you can speak Japanese, the world is your oyster here. If you can't, there's a limit to what you can achieve. The tools to help learn compared to when I got here 23 years ago, basically, basically it was Japanese TV. Now you've got so many tools. Um, even before you get here, you can have an amazing level of Japanese. So yeah, burn up on that, read up on the industry that you want to be in, 
and start contacting people and, and talk to them before you get here and you'll have an amazing time. Yeah, I think those are all great points. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I'm thank you, Lydia. forward to sharing it. Thank you. I'm, my pleasure. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. And please be sure to check out the links in the description of the episode to learn more about Will Jespriza and his team's work at Interlink. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoy the podcast. Feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com, all one word, all lowercase, if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, Be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest on the podcast to share your own cultural insights into doing business in Japan. I'd also love to hear from you directly, so if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo!